PSYOP soldiers contribute to the Army's objectives through the utilization of unconventional tactics. They employ their intellect, interpersonal abilities, cultural awareness, and proficiency in foreign languages to influence the beliefs and behaviors of foreign governments, organizations, and individuals. The art of psychological warfare necessitates flexibility, determination, and an adept problem-solving to achieve desired outcomes. In our conversation, we look at how PSYOPs is employed on the battlefield and how the career field will be changing in the future. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. All right, thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Raven Report podcast. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I've got a couple of very interesting guests on today. Uh, first is our very own Dark Rifle XO, uh, Major Tom Haydock. How are you doing, sir? Hey, I'm great. How are you, Brandon? I'm all right. Yeah, and then uh, we have uh, all of the interesting PSYOPs people from the uh, Joint Special Warfare. Why don't you all just introduce yourselves, or else I'll butcher yet another intro. So. Hey, no, appreciate it. Uh, gentlemen, pleasure to, to be here with you. Uh, my Lieutenant Colonel Adam Gaudio. I'm the Army Proponent Manager for PSYOP here at the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. Uh, so like any other Army COE, we're a branch proponent, have a lot of the force modernization uh, responsibilities in our office, uh, primarily personnel proponency, the career field management, doctrine development, and then training development for, for the branch uh, both active duty and reserve component forces. I'm Marty Bartram. I'm the Chief of Psychological Operations Doctrine here. And um, Colonel mentioned the center, right? So we are the Special Operations Center of Excellence as well as the center in school. Um, so we work in the uh, center of excellence um, as opposed to the schools at this time. Yeah. And uh, Sergeant Major Ed Fayette, uh, I'm a reserve component advisor within the PSYOP proponent uh, to Colonel DeGaudio. Uh, I'm an uh, active guard reserve uh, soldier myself, stationed here at Fort Bragg. Spent a lot of time out at uh, JBLM um, as well before I, uh, before I came over here. Um, but I uh, advise and support uh, the director with uh, all things RC to include uh, National Guard uh, concerns. Of course, we do have uh, PSYOP personnel within within the Guard itself, too. Right. Well, it's super cool that we have a PSYOP or a, a voice uh, in the office there, uh, you know, from us. Uh, so I really appreciate yeah, you being there. Um, so I guess to get us started, just explain what PSYOPs is, is to me. I'm just a chaplain from South Arkansas, not the, the sharpest tool in the shed. So I'm going to need a uh, need some help. So like, what is it? What's it not? And then uh, what are your limits? Like what we're what's your left and right limits? Do you want to go? Sure. So um, the doctrinal definition of military information support operations is planned operations to convey selected information indicators to foreign audiences to influence their emotions, motives, objective reasoning, and ultimately the behavior of foreign governments, organizations, groups, and individuals in a manner both favorable, favorable to the originator's objectives. So legacy that used to be the definition of psychological operations. And in 2010, Secretary of Defense um, made a change 
kept the name psychological operations for the army branch and changed the operation name to military information support operations. Here we are 13 years later and we have not changed our vernacular. And when I say we, I mean the folks in the branch. We still have folks that say, hey, we do PSYOP, right? Um, MISO is the primary thing we are built and trained for. Um, that's what soldiers come out um, as entry-level psychological operations soldiers and officers um, trained to do, but there's other things we do as well. Um, supporting tactical deception, helping plan tactical deception, security force assistance, foreign internal defense, all those other types of things um, that, that Army does across the board, right? Um, and security cooperation and other, other authorities. Makes sense. Uh, so well, yes, left and right limits. So we were having the discussion this morning, actually in the office, um, programmically, in order for a combatant commander to conduct MISO, he has to have a pre-approved program. And that program is either approved by the Secretary of Defense in an XORD or operations order, or by the Undersecretary of Defense for policy um, before they can get forces and actually conduct operations. That's a pretty high uh, approval authority there for, you know, just like any operation, you know, that's kind of speaks to the, the level of, I don't know, veracity that, that uh, MISO could have on the battlefield. Yeah, and I go, that has increased over time, right? So when I wore a uniform, we did not have the internet. Right. There was no social media. Um, and that has changed drastically. So the environment's changed. And so the oversight requirements are also being looked at. Right, and what do we need to change to make to make sure the left and right limits are appropriate, and for what echelon? Right. Yeah, I guess with the uh, social media and the internet, like uh, whereas before you could drop a leaflet in Afghanistan and it stayed in Afghanistan, but now you drop something digital, there's no telling where it ends up. There's also a part that really has to do more with U.S. law and the way the psychological operations is defined in law. It's you know it has been for many years uh, in a special operations activity. Um, there's reasons in that sort of guidance to the force, um, reasons why the SOCOM, you know, as a, as a functional combatant command um, kind of has responsibility for that and is frankly the, the joint proponent for MISO. Um, but, but there's an inherent risk politically in some cases where, you know, that's always been there. Even back when it was psychological warfare, you look at how the career field and the function developed through the 40s and the 50s and 60s, you know, that was part of it. Um, everything from traditional army missions to the types of missions that army special forces and joint special operations forces did, there was either a very, very direct and overt or a very implicit amount of political risk associated with that. And so that understanding and sort of that lens on it is one of the reasons why MISO is so I wanna say tightly governed, but is so very deliberately managed by the Defense Department um, and why there is so much oversight. And frankly, for the active duty special operations force, that's something that um, is, you know, the reasons why theater socks employ forces in support of those missions. Um, because when we talk conventional forces in the army, especially support to 
emerging crisis or LISCO, those things have already occurred. Those permissions have already been granted. Those exhorts have already been issued. Those forces have been established. So you have conventional forces that are working for army corps, army divisions, even you know, army uh, component commanders that are falling in on those things already existing and being part of the operational architecture. But in special operations and steady state outside of areas of conflict, we're still navigating those sort of legal and policy and operational requirements. Um, and so that's part of the day-to-day -day operations, understanding kind of how we are employed, how we plan under what authorities we operate on while forward. Right, makes sense. Well, I, I don't want to steal any fire from Major Haydock. Go ahead and ask your question, sir. Yeah, gentlemen, so my question, my first question ties into a little bit of what you were just saying a minute ago, sir. So, sir, we're looking at the joint phasing model. It has six steps in the phases, right? And first one is shape, then deter, seize the initiative, dominate, stabilize, and enable civil authorities, the fifth and last one, sir. Can you describe what psychological operations would look like across those phases? So, for instance, what does it look like in the shape and deter phases versus the dominate phase? So I think generally, um, one of the most important things to understand is the psychological operations to include those forces that are conducting MISO looks the same across that entire continuum. Um, the activities are there, you know, MISO is a traditional military activity. It's something that DOD forces conduct, army forces, as well as other services, regardless of where we are in the conflict continuum. Um, Forces conduct MISO in support of joint force command requirements in steady state. Um, whether you call it steady state or you call it competition um, or use outdated lexicon and call it phase zero, those activities are happening. And that is an operation that the Defense Department conducts in collaboration with other cabinet agencies, with State Department and with other partners. The, the real change across, we'll say escalation and de-escalation you know, moving from competition through emerging crisis into conflict is, is really the types of forces that are employed and the objectives that they're pursuing. Um, you know, you move from a steady state where you have predominantly soft forces that are deployed under a theater special operations command that are working with the country teams, working with their partners and working with allies. And then you move to a different point in that continuum where we're in large-scale combat operations. You have conventional army forces that are deployed in support of army commanders. Um, and so, so it looks different. It's organized differently. There are different forces that are deployed and employed over that time period. But the mission is essentially still the same. It's still the same planning processes. It's still this operation that is influencing a specific target audience in a specific location or locations for a desired behavior change, um, and then assessing and evaluating the success or failure of those efforts um, in support of whatever the requirement is. And so, you know, left to right over escalating and de-escalating problem sets, as well as looking at echelon all the way from the geographic or the functional combatant commander down to your smallest tactical force, the forces are executing the same types of missions. They're just doing it very, very differently. 
they're organized, trained, and equipped a little bit differently based on what their operational requirements are. Um, and, and that really is sort of the underpinning that drives things like why the forces are different, why are they organized differently, why are some forces in the Army Reserve component and some on active duty. Um, but the, the craft, the skill sets that SIOP personnel bring to bear in execution of their mission are the same. It's often just the way in which they're operating and the conditions in which they are deployed in or employed in is what's different. So let me talk that back to you. So basically what you're saying is that, that, that a MISO guy is like a mechanic and depending on what he's working on is what like the tools and like, the situation they're going to be in. Is that kind of, am I picking up basically kind of what you're saying? Yeah. So the, the PSYOP soldier, because we have PSYOP professionals, um, the Army 37 Alphas and 37 Foxes, the skill sets are the same. There's additional training for a lot of those personnel based on the mission that their unit has. So there's training that uh, someone who is in the seventh or second psychological operations group in the reserve have that are unique to their mission in support of army commanders. There are some skills and training that an active component person has in the seventh and eighth SIAP groups that are unique to first SF commands mission. So there, there are differences, but when we take a step back and look at what is the craft, what is the mission being executed, those skills are the same skills. It's the same qualification pathways, the same sort of levels of training. So the art and the science are very, very similar. Um, the ways in which you employ those personnel, those units of action, those forces is very, very different. And a lot of what I think people in the Army see as differences are more about the organizational mission and the echelon and less about differences that exist within the career field and across the AOC and the MOS. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so one of the, the things that, that we constantly are trying to figure out is like, how do we employ uh, maneuver to help jeopardize the enemy's will to fight, to make them just not necessarily destroy them, but make them just want to quit, just make them want to be defeated. Um, how does, how can like we employ MISO or can we employ MISO or how does it get employed uh, to basically achieve that end, to make them want, want to quit. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think at the most basic level, actually, Sergeant Major and I had a conversation about this at a very, very tactical level um, the other day from an experience I had um, working with um, 6th, Infantry, um, 6th Infantry Division Battalion up in Alaska 20-some-odd years ago, um, maybe longer. Um, but what, what it ultimately comes down to is what's the culture, right? Does not that any military has a culture of um, surrender, right? But what is the, how do they value their people, right? So there are cultures that don't put a great deal of value on the individual soldier, right? Um, so are they going to be willing to capitulate or are they willing to, to risk that? Um, at the same time, or not at the same time, but the other thing is what options do they have? So if I can communicate to them that there is a viable option other than fighting for them, right, and provide that option to them, then hopefully they're going to take it. Um, more directly, 
what Sergeant Major and I were talking about is you have to be winning, right? Or be poised to win. So if I have not yet started the fight, but I can present, hey, this is going to be overwhelming for you, clearly, right? right. So that's how I would use maneuver to do that. Right. The threat of military intervention when my tanks are still on in the United States isn't as um, present, right, as if I'm poised at the border ready to go. Um, right. right. So at a tactical level, it comes down to that, right? Am I winning because or am I prepared to win and they know I'm going to win? Um, right. Yeah, so I, I remember um... – we were on a deployment at a place that I won't necessarily call out on a public forum, but that we were doing uh, frequent flyovers of, of F-18s that just basically say like, Hey, look, look what we have. Like, you know, and that was, that's kind of getting after what you're saying. Right. So, yeah. So that's, there's also at the strategic level, right. The national level, the fact that I put a, a carrier group off someone's coast sends a bunch of different messages, right. right. The fact that we have, um, Joint Chiefs of Staff exercises, right, that are big and public is not only to rehearse, but also to send a message, right, of what our right. capabilities are. So, you know, taking it from the brigade level, how do I use that maneuver unit to the strategic level, right, that would be um, what we use to shape the environment, right, to deter, to prevent. All that kind of stuff. Yeah, so like us at the at the brigade, we understand that like just showing up and um, we've kind of achieved a strategic level like victory just by the fact that we're there. Now it's, we we've already kind of started the process of of, of winning. And so, um, okay, let me go. Uh, so like, uh, what are the the means and method? Well, I guess you can't really get after that, but like. I want to get to um, how how does AI now factor into this? Like uh, we have a a, um, a a commander who has gone on to uh, to be a, a instructor at Sam's at, at Leavenworth, and so I asked him. I was like, if you had these guys in a room, what were the what were kind of the burning questions uh, for you? And like one of them was like social media, which we've kind of got into, and I want to get into a little bit more later. But one of his questions was like, well, how does AI shape all this? Because before um, you had to like you know know something and craft some something yourself and you had to rely on people but now with a, like a large you know uh, you know a data set with a, a really capable uh you know language model that can just craft stuff like what does that mean for both us and the offense and the defense like how do we protect ourselves from it and how, like what is employing ai gonna how's it gonna change uh miso in the future yeah, so it, it's a it's a tough question to answer, frankly. And I know that you know, like everybody, we spend a lot of energy, and and, and part of that's collaboration with our capability uh, development office that is separate from us. But the, really, kind of three three very general areas in which we we look at the problem and the challenge. So one of them is in our ability to understand what's happening in the operational environment. You know, we we used to call it an information environment. That terminology really is no longer applicable. But as we talk about conducting operations information environment from a joint perspective, or we talk about achieving information advantage from the Army service perspective, the challenges that are inherent in accurately understanding the information environment and being able to do you know, two things simultaneously. One is to deny, degrade, sort of impact the adversary's ability 
to make decisions and understand the environment for themselves, right? Getting into their OODA loop, getting into their decision cycle, presenting challenges for them that decrease their effectiveness, um, you know, from a, from a tactical for army perspective. Uh, but then also for us is to sort of gauge, hey, what are we seeing and is what we're seeing relevant or not relevant to um, everything from identifying who communicators are, um, identifying whether an adversary or a neutral um, message or theme is resonating with, uh, you know, populations we're interested in or specifically targeted audiences. So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, but part of it is I need to understand the environment that we're operating in, um, degrade the adversary's effectiveness and degrade their understanding to some degree enable our commanders in making decisions at the right point in time, but then also trying to navigate where is AI relevant in that, where is it not? Um, an easy one for us that we look at, that we look at all things capability development is um, just the, the ability to digest larger amounts of data, you know, leveraging AI and to some degree machine learning in how do I take a skilled individual operator Right, a trained PSYOP professional who is trying to do more of this with less. How do I leverage AI? How do I leverage software? How do I leverage ML to increase their ability to digest and sort of filter through and synthesize the valuable and relevant information and then pull that in so that we're spending all of our energy and all of our calories efficiently and effectively executing our craft. That, that's a big gap in the swing. Another one that, that often comes up as we look at training is trying to understand exactly where an adversary or any actor in the environment is effectively leveraging that and understanding that that's the tool that they're employing, right? If, if I'm trying to counter or sort of dissuade an audience from um, another messaging threat, a Q communicator or an adversary's you know, an entire propaganda effort, knowing whether or not that's the result of an individual or result of software, like that's relevant in our targeting process. I need to understand, do I spend the energy trying to counter a narrative from an individual or a leader or a communicator, or is that energy not spent wisely because what I really should be doing is moving my target base over to who's actually driving the train on that? Where is the ownership of that coming from? So, there's a lot there where it, there's two sides. Part of it is us understanding how we leverage it to do more, better, faster, and more efficiently. The other side of it is how do I sort of navigate the challenges that that creates for me in understanding where to target, where to influence, um, how to counter other messages, how to reach my target audience, because ultimately we're trying to get to behavior change, not just trying to get to a point where and audience is effectively accessing the information that we're trying to, to present to them. Right. Okay, so let me, that kind of germed up another question, but also I wanna talk that back to you to make sure that, that, I'm, that I'm tracking. So what you're basically saying, and, and we've had conversations like this in, in our formation is that like AI basically becomes a tool to make you more efficient, but it can't necessarily replace the creativity or maybe like the, kind of like the, the multivariate understanding that a human has. That um, like, for instance, we had a um, uh, we had Stan McChrystal on our podcast and he talked about how he 
uh, bought a what, what we did the math for inflation was like twelve thousand uh, dollar computer for his track vehicle when he ever did his first NTC rotation. So that way he didn't have to like manually type out or jelly roll uh, old orders. He could just like he had like a, a computer where he could just hit you know, input the relevant data and it spit out an order. And he said it freed him up so much to actually think more like a commander and not just like trying to do all this admin work. And so you look at that kind of like model in the past that AI basically becomes the same thing now that we can be become more efficient at things that we're already doing, which basically gives us back the time to, to be better at, at being us. Um, so that's like one part that I can heard you say, and I'll let you correct me if, if I'm wrong uh, with that. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely right. I mean, part of it is just, you know, there's, there's a, I look at it from a proponent lens of there's a workload, workload challenge here, right? Um, so much of what we do is still annual, uh, analog and manual. You know, there's this large amount of it. And, and while we get better at using software tools and platforms to make those processes and information sharing better and faster, there is still today, still an enormous analog requirement there. So using tools that leverage AI, that leverage ML, that sort of truncate the workload a little bit so that we spend less time refining analysis or confirming that our analysis is right and that we're targeting the right things, we're conveying the right messages, we're pursuing the right objectives. That, that's, that's kind of how, that's what we need as we continue to, to be better at what we're doing for the Joint Force and the Army Commanders. From the adversary perspective, understanding how an adversary is leveraging AI to create the problem that they're creating for us. So, you know, in the simplest terms, being able to recognize when a communicator is artificial or a real person becomes very, very critical. Um, you know, you, you can imagine a scenario where an organization or the, you know, the U.S. government spends energy trying to identify how to challenge or negate the effectiveness of someone who is conveying a very strong and aggressive message that's resonating only to then find out that it's not really a communicator, it's software. And so just this idea of this, you have to understand the operating environment, you have to understand what you're looking at. And so the, the better we are at identifying where, when, and how AI is being leveraged on the entire you know, sliding scale that, that that could be, that's essential for us to effectively make recommendations and identify where the opportunities to be effective are gonna be whether we're talking fighting in LISCO, we're talking about force on force in a, in a combat zone, or whether we're talking about how are we supporting broader U.S. government goals and supporting theater and TSOC level commander objectives. Yeah. So um, you, you spoke a little bit earlier, and Marty kind of got after this um, a little bit. It's like you said that there was a difference between behavior change and uh, just simply like presenting information for someone to consume. Can you speak more to that? Like, how do you actually elicit behavior change? Like, what are the tenets there as opposed to uh, just simply just dumping a bunch of uh, information like on somebody? So I'll, I'll answer that. I'm going to let the, the doctrine professional answer it because I don't want to do, uh, <laughs> I don't want to misbehave. But it really comes down to um, like any great plan or any good plan. Um, how solid is your planning? How solid is your analysis? But the way that we really focus on the craft is by making sure that we're clearly identifying what the objectives are. We're ensuring that the analysis and the planning process is meeting that need, that requirement. But it really comes down to 
making sure that the execution of your, of your operation, your influence effort is measurable, it's observable, and that the way in which you're measuring and observing those, those target audience actions is enough to determine when are they accessing the information and that's different than them being sort of influenced in their thought and their belief by the information, which is still separate and distinct from them actually changing their behavior. And so what, what is very difficult and is, is, you know, oftentimes the hard part in a lot of ways is building a plan that has the required resources brought to bear, um, everything from face-to-face -face engagement by conventional forces, to interagency partners, to the intelligence community, being able to map out that sort of logic train on how are we going to assess and evaluate the effects, the effectiveness or the lack of effectiveness, essentially based on our collection plan. And so that's really where you get into the art and the science in this is, we have to understand that to know definitively that MISO, um, is having the desired effect, and then we're starting to see the behavior change because that then drives every other adjustment we're going to make, and it drives decisions on whether we continue to to target an audience, whether we continue to convey the same message, um, or whether we, you know, hey, maybe I proved to myself that I do not have the level of access to the target audience that I intended through this medium, or this medium is not as effective to that audience as I initially assessed it would be. And so you're constantly rudder correcting how you're engaging it and the, the, the mode, the method, and the way in which you're, you're targeting the audience. But it really comes down to, do I have enough information on the backside to assess true effectiveness or is what I'm getting indicators of, of accessibility and not really getting those indicators about um, behavior change, thought process change, belief system change, et cetera. But I'm going to turn back over to Marty because that's a very sort of big hand little map answer to the question. There's probably more that we can highlight. Yeah, I'm probably gonna go bigger hand, bigger map rather than, <laughs> than dive deep into what we actually teach and train and, and all that. Um, and I'll just point out the one of the things we're working on evolving right now is the technical side, the science side of what we do. Um, our current special text, which is, our reference for the process we use is roughly 200 pages. We have published the first of our, the first of a series, which is our first ever technical manual. Um, so we're gonna have this series of technical manuals that will probably be about a thousand pages. Oh, wow. um, and some of it's very academic um, in its foundings, behavior and behavioral science I don't think there's been anything earth shattering um, come out of anywhere um, in terms of, oh, we never knew this before. Most right. of the models have been around for a while to change behavior and work. Um, it's just, what tools do I need? What is the setting? Does it work in the setting? So, so kind of going back, it starts with having an objective that's measurable, right? And that means as a commander, whether my objective is being implemented by a tactical PSYOP team that's attached to me, if I'm the brigade commander, or it's my battalions, right? 
if I can't measure that objective, then how does that subordinate unit implement it? Yeah. Right? So, right. and then commander's intent also plays into that. So then starts with objective. And then I think, you know, if we go all the way to assessment at the end, I not only have to be able to say this, this behavioral outcome, this effect is attributed to what we did, or I need to be able to say, we did this, we think it had zero effect. However, we got the desired behavior because of all these other things that were happening in the environment, right? Sometimes right. we're not the only or the loudest or the most effective voice in the room. You know, if you look at the information environment or the information dimension in that respect. And then I think the third aspect of this is one that we are wrestling with here at the proponent right now. And that is differenti differentiating the types of behavior that I'm looking to, to create, right? Or sustain or have not happened. So right. there's a difference in what I have to do to create persistent behavior, right? How do I get a soldier to always do the right thing when nobody's looking? Well, that's culture, right? right. And it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by the end of basic training, right? It takes time to do that. If I want that soldier to snap to the position of attention and present arms when the colors are being raised, that's a different type of behavior, right? And it doesn't require these same techniques, um, level, I'll just say level of influence, right? Exposure to influential product products um, that the other behavior does, right? So that has not been well documented in DOD. But I think, so again, it's something we're wrestling with. What is the utility of describing those different behaviors? And then how do we translate that to a commander? Um, because some may require authorities that come from Washington, D.C., and some are inherent in the authorities you have as a maneuver commander. So if right. we can better describe which one is which, then I think we kind of free up the, the playbook for the commander, and then we we help say, hey, you can do this on your own, or you can do this with a little bit of support versus needing all this capability that we have. Yeah, I mean, a, a commander, a commander having the forces and the all the the authorities and approvals to conduct MISO as a way to influence is not the only tool in the tool bag. Um, and and you know, as the army continues to experiment with and mature the way it looks at information advantage. And, and you know what we mean by information advantage, how we get there. Part of that is really at, at its core a discussion about all of the ways in which a commander can influence the adversary, can influence neutral populations. It's not always limited to the to the information capabilities brought to bear. You know, old terminology we call them IRCs. We talk about really just capabilities now and information advantage activities as, as the doctrine moves forward, but really it's a matter of in what ways can I influence and shape my battlefield, my adversary, my adversary's decision cycle. MISO is a part of that, um, but often is not the only way in which a commander or an organization can influence. There's all kinds of other capabilities um, to include those that are conducted by, you know, maneuver forces and, and forces in the rear area. Um, and so 
trying to take a step back from this idea or this approach to planning and execution where, hey, if I don't have a MISO detachment, then I can't, I can't influence the adversary. Well, that's not the case. You have all sorts of ways you can influence it. You can do a shore of show of force, right? There's all sorts of things that you can do to create dilemmas for the adversary, um, whether in LISCO or in, in emerging crisis. Um, and so just, you know, getting back to that a little bit, in addition to understanding how to properly employ the PSYOP forces provided to a commander, that becomes critical in thinking through how am I going to actually achieve my mission, achieve my objective for my higher headquarters. Um, and so there's a lot in there that is really not necessarily unique to PSYOP as a, as a force, uh, but is kind of more generally a, a question for commanders to address in planning as they approach achieving information advantage, or as they try to lay out and map out what operations they're going to conduct in the information environment going forward. Yeah, so um, it's very interesting. I've heard you use uh, some terms that, that I kind of wanted to highlight. Um, I was reading a paper yesterday and it was talking about using maneuver warfare as a template for cognitive warfare later on. And um, you've, you've cited John Boyd with, with his OODA loop. And then like you talk about you put people on the, uh, in, on the horns of a dilemma, in the position of a dilemma. Um, and our guys are very, very well versed in, um, in fighting in that way. Um, could you like highlight how that could be, like maneuver warfare tenants can be used uh, on the battlefield um, to create the effects that, that you guys are trying to create um, using that methodology? Is that, is that too pregnant of a question? I can give you a very tactical example, okay. like a very, very tactical example. Right. And then if that doesn't fit the bill, you know, we can, we'll expand, right? Right. So um, for listeners out there, if my memory is false and I didn't actually do that, what I'm about to say, and you were on the ground, Okay, I'm old and my memory's failing, right? I got a little bit of TBI according to the VA. So um, when we initially went into Somalia to um, create stability and do humanitarian, support humanitarian relief operations, right? I was attached to an infantry battalion and we were going into areas where no one had been before, into towns and villages and really just establishing security. So the first time we were getting ready to go into this town, um, the commander's intent was that everybody would be in full camouflage, right? Camied up, loaded for bear, you know, we're going in there to do this. So as we're going through MDMP and, um, I'm participating in that as an attachment. I asked, what is the threat level, right? And two, what tactical advantage do you get by camming up? Because we're in an urban environment, right? Right. Um, <laughs> the face camouflage doesn't necessarily help me. Um, and I said, what is the effect we're trying to create on the population? Because there really was no threat in this area. Um, doesn't mean you're not prepared to react, right? And so basically I said, hey, look, you can smile and wave while you keep your finger on the trigger, right? right? Or outside the trigger well. 
right? So I can point my rifle, but I can be smiling and waving. I don't have to be camied up to do that. And I send a different message. Now, on a follow-up op, so he was down with that, right? Which was great. Conversely, later in that same area, we did a cordon and search, right? Different mission that we first went into. I'm like, yeah, cam me up. You are here to show, like, it's a show of force in part, right? right. So show, show that side of you. It creates a different effect, right? So those are just very tactical examples about how I can create effects, right? Right. And in and, and wherever I'm operating. Right. Uh, that makes sense. So you're trying to, like, basically uh, – put yourself in the, the people that you're operating around shoes and figure out what am I communicating to them? And is that, is that conducive to what I'm doing? So if you're trying to like win you know, hearts and minds rolling through town, like, you know, yeah. looking like you're ready to rock and roll as a whole, it doesn't, it's kind of counterintuitive or, you know, counter. So the, the joint doctrine evolutions of that mm-hmm. is the recognition that everything that I do, that we do as a military has inherent informational effects in the environment. That makes sense. Everything I do. Right. So I need to think about that, figure out what message it sends. And if it's sending a message that creates an effect I don't want, maybe I need to rethink that, or I just need to go in and mitigate that risk somehow. Right. Right. But everything I do has an effect. So I have to think through that. Um, Yeah. That, that, so that raises a question. So like, um, so I'm a chaplain and, and uh, they, uh, you know, throughout school, all you hear is that you're a non-combatant, you're a non-combatant and you're like, okay, cool. So uh, AR-165-1 says, well, I'm not going to pick up a gun and, and go you know, and fight people. That's cool. But then you throw the internet into it and it's like, all of a sudden now, you know, information becomes like this, this medium in which we're, we're doing all this stuff. And so, like anything that I do online or anything, I, I you know, like I for years did word of the week to, to my soldiers. Like that's getting put out there, and then, like you said, like that's going to have an effect, right? So, at what point does like information become like a, a weapon or a tool, and do I, do I become a combatant by putting information into the world? You know, and so you know that's like a it's it's almost like we've kind of gone from this old school uh you know geneva convention regimented this is an army to like something new or at least it feels that way what's your opinion on that yeah it's tough and and i uh, i smirk a bit when you say that because you know we and and even operationally you know while forward is is a discussion about you know hey not everything that's occurring in the information environment is necessarily relevant to to planning, to the mission, to the DOD, you know, to the, the inherent military mission. So there is, I mean, that's a challenge, right? When is something that is out there relevant? When is it, you know, categorized? And that's, that's just a challenge. I think everybody, you know, public private sector tries to navigate, like, right. What, when's it relevant? And that's part of this, this need to better filter and, and, you know, digest, you know, we, we, you know, internally as a career field, all had very similar experiences about, you're, you're somewhere, you're in an organization, whether deployed or not, and something happens. And the first question asked of the SIA personnel is, what are you doing about that? B- because more often than not, the answer is nothing. I'm not going to do anything about that. Because, you know, just because one, it doesn't necessarily require the full weight and capability that, that is, is, is here and available to, to counter it. Because in some cases it's out. 
Like, what are we, we're, we're not trying to prevent it from getting out, like it's out. Um, the other part of it is it may not, may not be relevant, right? And the third part of it is that I don't have the availability of more people and forces to, to take that on because that now detracts us from what our current focus is. So there really is this sort of appetite suppressant component in here about it's out and it doesn't matter. And trying to have that conversation, you know, informally and then with commanders about there's going to always be a lot of stuff that either is not relevant, is not worth spending energy and capital on, but more importantly, doesn't necessarily have an impact on what we're doing next or what we're doing in the longer term. And so, you know, kind of being able to, to filter that and articulate that you know, very well. Uh, back to your initial question about what can the maneuver forces do? One thing you said earlier was about, you know, remember, you know, PSYOP forces that are, are there to do MISO. You know, keep in mind that PSYOP forces can also be there to do things other than MISO. Um, you know, deception is one of those examples. You know, PSYOP forces are trained to do that. Um, oftentimes it's a challenge because there may not necessarily be a lot of ways to be deceptive. Um, but inherent in that is also this idea of put, put that talent, put that unit that is available to you to work thinking of all the creative and devious ways in which they can create effects. And, and we, we talked about that even recently about, you know, hey, one of the challenges the Army has is that, you know, you have side forces available. We immediately associate their task and purpose with conducting MISO in the act of messaging an audience. But there's also cases where, hey, one of those detachments doesn't have a MISO mission, what it has a deception mission. So how do you leverage the capability you're given to come up with all sorts of very creative and effective ways to shape that battlefield? Um, and, and sometimes it says, it, sometimes they're very simple and they're not technical and they're not, um, you know, they're not expensive. They're just really like great opportunities. You know, hey, instead of having that um, that demonstration of force over here, having that fly by here, what if you completely change the way in which we're doing it, which has the potential of basically creating a completely different impact? Um, and so a lot of it's just having the professionals be able to take a step back, understand where the commander is going and the effects the commander wants to achieve and for what purpose. And then let them start to do the sort of option generation um, using the tools that they brought to the table with them and also find out what else is there. And that's where a lot of the collaboration with partners, the collaboration with the interagency, the collaboration with the IC that's inherent in the career field, that's where that really starts to bear fruit because there's all sorts of other things that may be going on where the solution and the best thing available to you may not be to do anything yourself. It may to actually to sort of tap into something else that's going on. You know, hey, it'd be great if I had the ability to do this to make the adversary think something different than what we're doing. But if you have a partner that can do that, like that's where you start to see those, those opportunities be generated. Um, and that's one of the things that your PSYOP forces are also bringing to bear. They're bringing that ability to kind of take one step back out of the fight for a second, think through what is in the realm of possible, and then frankly, just impose that will on the opportunity. Um, and, and that's something that is, I want to say it's unique to the force, but it is something that is inherently taught and trained 
in terms of how they understand the problem and how they try to generate options for a commander. It's a little bit kind of off the, I mean, that, that's another piece of it because that's absolutely relevant in LISCO um, uh, in very different ways. It's, it's relevant to competition and steady state operations that are, you know, sort of outside the realm of army operations. No, no I, I appreciate it. There's a, we got a, a task from our division to, uh, to generate a LPD on uh, on the Ukraine Russia fight, and one of the things that I don't think I really understood until after I started churning through uh, all that the document that they gave us, um, which is published by the British Army, it's a public document, um, was that like the Russians spent a lot of time, effort, energy on the deception operation on the front end, so much so that they deceived themselves. So, like, I would uh, love to hear your opinion on on that whole shenanigan, and then how do we not uh, not do it so well that like we confuse our own guys. So, I mean, so the, the short answer is, you know, one information sharing and, you know, everything from just the understanding of the plan and understanding the battle all the way to the level of like, you know, talking about developing cops and how do commanders at echelon understand the battlefield and what's, what's being done. Um, you know, that, that's hard. And, and even as, as technically savvy as we currently are, you know, in the last week, we were having meetings about how much of a challenge that is, especially when you're trying to visualize all of the things happening in the information environment in a battle space or in a commander's purview, because you very quickly get to the point where there's so much that we can't really filter it. And again, back to that relevancy, how do you understand it? So, I mean, you know, first and foremost, it just comes down to the deliberate processes we have to to plan, to share plan, to collaborate, um, and, and I think from a targeting perspective, is synchronizing the targeting cycle, right? Um, whether we're talking about army targeting or we're talking about you know, the joint targeting cycle at, at a higher echelon, the ability to ensure that all of your activities are in some way reflected in the targeting process, um, and and if you're a unit commander that has a defined battle space. That you are absolutely being, you know, remaining uh, aware and informed of exactly what's going on. I mean, that's so those those things that were applicable 40, 50 years ago are still absolutely still applicable. Um, the other part of it is is kind of understanding exactly what the priorities in terms of behavior change are. Um, you know, if I throw you know one of my older assignment hat back on before I was in this career field. You know, I'll, I'll reflect on, you know, the mid 2000s in Iraq, where at every echelon of combat maneuver force, there was this approach where I have to have my own PSYOP messaging and I have to generate my own messages and, and sort of align with the themes and the, the objectives of my higher headquarters, rather than, hey, the themes and the objectives and the target audiences have already been developed what we need is synchronization and unity of message at echelon. And that was, you know, not always firmly understood. It was, you know, very, kind of hard to navigate. Again, that was before I was in the career field. But I think now it's, it's, it's more of a matter of how do I keep pace with the change? Um, you know, if you're, in, if you're in LISCO and the audiences around you, the neutral population, the supportive population, the adversary itself, when you start to see the way that they consume information and understand um, what is going on as that changes, how are you kind of being informed, remaining abreast of how those changes are occurring? 
Um, in the simplest terms, if you start an operation and the number one social media platform you know, that is being used is X, and the majority of your target audiences are using X to access that information, how are you kind of remaining abreast six or seven months later when that's no longer the number one, you know, uh, that's no longer the number one app being used. Like it's, it's changed. Your population has shifted. The technology has matured. Um, and so just trying to understand, again, it goes back to my earlier comment about you have to understand what's going on because you have to filter what's relevant to your requirements and what's relevant to the behavior changes you need to occur as part of your commander's objectives in the longer term. Yeah, that um, that it hits home in a, a whole other front. So uh, through a uh, random series of events, I've, I'm our brigade social media manager, which is part of the reason why like, I'm running this uh, podcast. And uh, our our big push right now is recruiting and uh, trying to get some of the, some other individuals to understand that like, hey, look, a, a television ad is not going to reach Gen Z because they don't watch TV, they watch YouTube. It seems like that that seems to be very much in the the kind of the, the wheelhouse of you guys that y'all are trying to figure out, okay, well, here are the people, how are they consuming information? How do we find the, the medium uh, to that? Um, to that point, y'all kind of brought up a, a, another struggle in that area. They there's constantly this question being asked of like, okay, how do we know that we are effectively recruiting via like social media? Um, they never ask the same question about how do we, how are we effectively recruiting over uh, billboards, you know, but like it always becomes about social media. So like, how do you guys like, like, I guess without like giving away too much, but how do you guys like manage to uh, establish an effect and then like try to measure it so that way you can create your own like you know positive feedback loop to, to enhance that effect because lessons learned from you guys can actually work really well in like recruiting I would imagine. So I, I want to throw a, a caution flag out here just to make sure I'm, I'm being articulate. All right. You know one of the legal left and right limits that army psyop forces have is that we only conduct MISO on foreign audiences. So I'm right. going to we can talk the recruiting piece because, frankly, as a branch proponent, we have you know a, a solid responsibility for the recruitment piece, and we have the same challenges that the Army faces right now, and that we you know have an absolute need for propensed and talented people to take interest in our career field, um, both in the active and reserve component. So we're we're looking at the same problem right there with you. Um, I, I think you know very generally, it, it really comes down to understanding your audience understanding how they consume information, not just the, the things that they go to for that information, but also the ways in which they digest the information. I'm not using doctrinal terms. Right. Right. Verify that for me on the, on the backside, right? So it really just isn't about, you know, does this person access that app? Yes or no. Does the, the person or the audience access that, um, that medium? It's more about looking at it through kind of a, a, a broader lens. In what ways do they do they consume information? Um, right. and, and you made a great point. You know, if if you're targeting a generational audience, if that generation doesn't use a certain platform, then you're not going to get the return on investment. Um, right. and, and so so there are a lot of similarities, at least my my the way I've always understood, and I've been in recruiting command before. There's lots of similarities in 
in the challenges of how do you craft a message that resonates with the people you want it to resonate with. But then how do you also better understand whether or not that resonance is leading to interest, is leading to engagement, is leading to behavior change? <clears throat> As a recruiter, I can get all the contacts I need, right? And I always have a goal, like I have to make X amount of contacts. But how do I better understand whether we're moving beyond the contact and the things that I'm highlighting and the things that I'm bringing to the discussion are the things that resonate with that audience. Um, and if that audience is not motivated and propensed in the first place, I can resonate all day long with them. That's not necessarily going to compel them to change. And so knowing that they're compelled and propensed is, is part of that. I can't just have access and have a message and have an engagement. I need to have information that confirms or affirms for me that that person is interested. I've talked to people that they know, they've confirmed that they are interested. And so like you have to have that level of understanding of your audience. That is the same in recruiting at home as it is in understanding foreign audiences, whether for public affairs purposes or for our purposes, which is, I can't just make contact with the audience. I need to know so much about that audience and how they consume information, how they're everything from culture to the sociological aspect of the cycle. That's the analysis piece. And so, you know, we often talk in our career field about, hey, the, the, the seven step PSYOP process we use is not itself the execution of the mission. But if I don't do it well and I don't do it completely, I'm not at the position in which I know enough to create the effect. And I think that for recruitment, there's a lot of similarities there because you can't just go in cold and, and hope you're going to get it. Um, you know, my experience in recruiting, we were, I was in the special operations recruiting battalion that did all the in-service recruitment. And we, we you know, this is 10 years ago, but this idea that, hey, I can put somebody in all of their kit at the mini mall and I'm going to engage with a hundred soldiers that are not ready and able in a position because it's not my market. That's not my propensed target market. I need to start focusing on the places where they are. And I need to know that that's where they are. Um, especially when it doesn't look like, you know, everyone's accustomed to, Hey, the recruiting thing is set up. They've got all the stuff out. They've got the vehicle out. Like, it's not going to look like that because that's not where my audience is. I need to do it differently because I can't spend the energy recruiting audiences that are not eligible, not interested, and not available to me. I need to focus on the people that are. Um, and it's got, that's, that's everything from that's just where the market is all the way through. I don't have the bandwidth, the amount of people, and the amount of money to kind of keep doing more, I need to do a little bit less, but make sure the return on investment is, is there. I'll stop yapping because I think I've answered the last three. I'm gonna to try to go back a little bit first full circle. All right. Um, and try to tie all these things together. I may fail. Um, one, I start out again with objectives, right? Has to be measurable. Um, whenever I look at a behavior change, for any type, any reason. I have to understand what the baseline behavior is to measure change, right? So if I don't have a baseline, 
So if I were um, charged with, if I worked for a soda company, right? And I had a demographic that I want to increase sales in, I'd first have to know what their current sale rate is, right? Right. Um, so you can apply that to recruiting or anything, right? Right. Um, Brandon, you asked at what point do I become a weapon as a chaplain, right? right. Um, haven't seen you hunt turkeys. I can tell you, you are a weapon. Um, so, but I think coming back to that, it comes down to intent. What is the purpose of my behavior, right? What effect am I trying to create? Um, so again, purpose of behavior. Every leader has a responsibility to positively influence, right? Their subordinates, their peers, and even their superiors. Right. Right. What is the best way to do that? Oh, are you asking me? I'm just, yeah, I'll throw that out there. You can oh, say it's uh, rhetorical and, and we'll edit it out, but. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Well, no, so yeah, the, the best way to, to, to influence, um, I have found, is to, if you master yourself, then all of a sudden that becomes very inspirational to other people. If they see you doing uh, something that's difficult, something that's hard, something that's like outside the, 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 the realm of what is the, the status quo, not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, like, I'm not saying like, go, you know, be a terrorist, but like, you know, go and say like, Hey, look, uh, we want to do this thing. What if we did it a step above and then they see you do, even if you fail, they just see you stepping up, trying all of a sudden it kind of like, opens the door for, uh, you know, for people to, to, to try it themselves. They're like, well, if he can do it, then I can do it. If, if the chaplain can do X, Y, or Z, well, then I can do whatever. Like, especially in the infantry land, like that works like wonders. You can do all kinds of stuff that way. Right. So. If my, if my battalion chaplain is ranger qualified. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, it's very easy for me to say, um, why isn't everybody right. Um, uh, so modeling behavior is basically what you said, right? So how do I influence an audience that I want to essentially be like me? I have to model desirable behavior, right? Why does a kid want to become a pro athlete? Because he sees pro athletes all the time. It's, it's not because, well, it may be today, right? That Because they're seeing how much they get paid. <laughs> right. But it, typically it's not, right? They're seeing a behavior, right? Which is basically achieving greatness. They're not tying it to their moral behavior, though. Right. 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 So when they get morally exposed, what happens? Right. It, there's a change. So I would say, as you look at ways to influence, right, modeling good behavior is the best way to recruit anybody for anything. Um, and then going back to AI, there's, you know, and we talk about baseline data. That's where AI helps, right? Understanding the environment. Um, so I would say we had this conversation, so I'll stay out of army and keep myself safe. Right. right. So, um, I was at Backcountry hunters and anglers, um, annual rendezvous, and we were talking about impact through social media. And I asked a simple question. Do you have a pro professional Instagram account? Because if you don't, you're not measuring any impacts, right? But if you have a professional account, you're seeing all that data. Oh, right? yeah. And then, so, and then what does that data mean, yeah. right? So if I have 7,000 followers, but 6,000 are bots, right? I have yeah. to know that. So that kind of goes 
back and ties into recruiting and how do you do those kinds of things. Right, right. And last thing I'll kind of say, tying this to target audience and recruiting. Um, who's the audience? You got to neck it down. The citizen I recruit to be a mechanic may not have the same qualification, skills, desires, especially in the guard where they're gonna have a full-time job, right? right. Outside of, outside of um, their national guard duties is maybe not the same attributes, skill sets that I want an infantryman to be, right. right? So I always, and I'm biased. I don't know if we talked about this before or not, but I'll just, I'm biased, right? I coached wrestling for 17 years. Um, where does Navy Special Operations recruit? They are the sole recruiter at the high school national championships for wrestling. Really? Yes. So who are they recruiting? Tough, hardworking, dedicated individuals, right? In right. their demographic, right? Males and females within an age group. Right. Right. So necking things down, who do I really want to, to go after? Being so very precise. That's just like what we do in terms of refining a target audience. Some there's a general target audience. We can talk about populations, right? And and what I want a population to do or think. And then there's what I want an individual to do or think. And that takes a different kind of analysis, right? And takes a different technique and skills and tools to be able to check change in an individual. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, like I'm uh, I'm currently you may notice I'm I'm at a in a hotel room. I'm actually at an RB uh a marketing conference right now and the, the most interesting thing wasn't the this is how the bureaucracy works on how we buy billboards but like the uh the market research guy who broke down all of the like like here's all the people and here's all the trends and stuff like that was absolutely fascinating and uh i i found it kind of uh, encouraging because at least we're going in the right direction we probably can, can tweak it a little bit but uh, we're heading the right way um, and speaking of recruiting, so I know that like uh, you guys want like I know you guys want to talk talk about like the future uh, of your your branch and like how it's changing. And so I just kind of tee up like what does that look like? And if somebody wanted to to uh, to find their way into the the world of uh, Miso and your career field, how do they go about doing it? Um, especially in the guard because uh, we have a reserve component uh, advisor there. I, I definitely want to pull you in. So. So, so this is where I'm going to be very careful to not kind of lean so far forward in the saddle that we're, we're ahead of lots of stuff being decided. But right. um, I, I just will say kind of um, very generally that right now is an absolutely fantastic time for people that are interested in psychological operations as a career field. And this idea of influence and psychological warfare as an art and science this is absolutely the time to, to come into career field. Very not related to the recruiting challenges, but just, you know, as, as a profession, um, you know, it, it, sort of I'll say that uh, sort of not attributionally, ironically in this forum, but like there is a level of interest and attention at the Army level and at the Defense Department level on what we do, not just the Army branch, but also other services that have similar or like career fields. Um, because this idea that we have under-resourced and underbuilt the size of the profession that we currently need to support joint force commanders um, and to support the service, that is absolutely sort of where we are in time and space. Um, as a regiment, as a branch in the Army, we have 
forces in the active component in the U.S. Army Reserve. We have personnel in the active component, the reserve, and the National Guard. Um, and so th there is opportunities to, um, to talk to recruiters and to talk to the forces about how you become a 37 Alpha or a 37 Fox in compos one, two, and three. And so that, I think that's, that's really the, uh, the biggest takeaway. Um, as a regiment, we have had a lot of trouble in both active component and then the Army Reserve building enough capacity to fill our ranks in both the active component, reserve component. Um, we're over strength in a lot of areas, but where we really are hurting and always have been is in our initial assignment grade plates for NCOs and for officers. Um, so, you know, saying that that's really the focus of our recruitment efforts um, for all three components of the Army. Um, and so there's, there's absolutely a demand signal for interested and qualified talent but the biggest thing really comes down to is does this does this art of psychological operation the psychological warfare interest you and i think everything else kind of comes after that um there's constantly discussions about growth across the army um a lot of it is sort of in all the the usual suspect processes and decision cycles uh, but when we talk about information advantage, one of the big gaps the Army continues to acknowledge is we don't have enough of these professionals at Army major headquarters elements. We don't have enough forces. And so we have this challenge where we know that the demand signal for our people and our formations will continue to go up, um, but we're not in a good position in terms of the health of our force. Um, and so, you know, a lot of things we're looking at moving forward. Um, are just really creative ways to try to maximize what the options are. Um, everything from reserve component personnel doing active duty tours. There's all sorts of things we're trying to trying to get to. Um, but you know, it, again, it comes back to you know, if you want to be a devious mind and think of really creative ways to to generate problems for the adversary, and you want to change behavior. I mean, this is the field that does that across the army, and it does it in concert with other career fields like public affairs like cyber and EW, there's, there's lots of information related career fields, but this is the only one that the service has that really gets into the influencing people and their behavior. Um, everything else in, in, in some ways is really an enabling effort to, to the ways in which we do that. Um, so I, I, I mean, that's really the, the biggest, I think, takeaway. Um, there are three real routes that exist right now for service members that, that want to pursue this. So within the active duty army, uh, we recruit from within the ranks for both officers and, and soldiers. And so the SORB, the Special Operations Recruiting Battalion based here at Fort Bragg, has the mission of in-service recruitment. And they're the best point of contact. There are recruiting centers at a number of CONUS and OCONUS locations that do that. U.S. Army Recruiting Command also recruits for both active duty. Um, there is a direct enlistment option called 37 FOX Initial Entry Training in which you enlist in the army, you attend the military police on station unit training at Fort Leonard Wood, but you're on a track to move through MOS qualification to airborne school, and then you report to SWIC here at Fort Bragg, and you enter the pipeline and go into assess assessment selection course here at Fort Bragg. Um, that makes up about one third of our 
uh, personnel coming into the active duty RSAW force. Um, and then lastly, Army Recruiting Command also recruits for uh, the U.S. Army Reserve, specifically the two SIOP groups that are in U.S. Army Civil Affairs Psychological Operations Command, uh, also based at Fort Bragg, but second and seventh SIOP groups um, are constantly looking for interested talent. Um, that includes reservists that are already in the Army Reserve. That includes personnel that are interested in coming into the reserves and going to AIT at Fort Jackson uh, and, and pursuing the 37 Fox MOS. Um, and then also looking at active duty personnel who are leaving the active component going to reserves that are interested in going to PSYOP units um, because of the mission set and where their units are located at. And I, I'd add to that because I, I imagine you're not charged uh, with uh, getting your guard soldiers to leave the guard and go elsewhere right now. Right. Um, I share that the path for a, a for a guard soldier to become a, a, a psyoper um, is a little bit different, but but it exists. So the the nature of the positions uh, at the guard these are, are are planners at your your divisions, your BCTs, and so because of that, they're not necessarily entry level positions. Um, we're talking E six, seven, nine um, officers, uh, uh, captain positions primarily. So. Because of that, there's not a real accessions program to, to put folks into those positions. The idea is um, folks who are coming into those guard planner positions have done operational time somewhere else as a PSYOPer, transitioned off uh, active duty or uh, across compos from the reserve over into that position, but doing so bringing years of experience uh, operationally and training otherwise. Um, that said, those, those positions exist. Uh, so we do offer MOS transition training. Um, so on the enlisted side of the house, uh, E4 through E6, some exceptions at, at higher grades, um, can attend uh, RC conducted uh, qualification training. It's a, a distance learning phase uh, and then a 29 day uh, resident course um, conducted at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin currently. Um, National Guard does hold annual quotas, uh, seats to those courses. Um, so if someone's interested in our craft, uh, they, they can work through their individual schools, branch, uh, et cetera, to, to seek uh, one of those training seats and ultimately move to, uh, to one of those planner positions. Um, same on the officer side of the house, uh, we offer a psychological operations um, captain's career uh, it kind of acts as a qualification course as well. So similar timeframes, uh, a, a similar officer pool group, 01 to 03. Um, and, and, and again, uh, quotas are held for those. And I just caveat that, and, and this is kind of a point I wanted to make earlier as well, when you you talked a lot about, um, you know, how does your organization, uh, you know, best influence, but also best in employ the PSYOP that you have with you. And, and part of that is using those planners that you have if you have them at that level. Um, and because we acknowledge that uh, a lot of those planners, um, they may be entry-level trainees, right? A lot of your planners may have been folks who came through our qualification course and went straight right back. Uh, critically important that those planners know that they're not on an island. Uh, they're not the only PSYOP in the world. 
we here at Proponent uh, are able to, to take phone calls and advise at any time. But there's also U.S. Army Reserve psychological operations uh, soldiers and units across this country as well. So we'd encourage those planners and we'd encourage your organizations to put your planners in touch uh, with whatever that local USAR uh, SIAP organization may be. We can, we can assist with that here as well. Um, but yeah, my number one would advice would be to open the door during MDMP to that PSYOP planner. Um, you don't have to know how to employ PSYOP. Uh, open the door during that planning. Um, give them your objectives, your lines of effort, your desired effects. Uh, it's that PSYOP planner's uh, obligation then to access that toolkit and show you all the methods that they have which they can support those operations. And even in the case where it's not direct support, uh, a primary task of those PSYOP planners is to advise the supported commander on the psychological effects of his operations. So even if we're not directly doing something, you know, we, we talked again about that. A commander has uh, JAG PAO to advise on things happening in those realms, right? That PSYOP planner, uh, that's a, a primary task for them as well. I make yeah, we'll make, make one last plug for any of your listeners that have not seen the video Go oh, yeah. machine. Yeah. Highly yeah. recommend it. Anytime it's I'm sort of thinking about what I'm going to do next, I'd like to go back and watch that video. Uh, but it, it absolutely is a just a great couple minutes of uh, of entertainment. But it also, you know, frankly, kind of it leads to a lot of questions. Um, and and there's been some genuine success in that the an interested person's questions about what did I just see in the video. Um, you know, we've got lots of atmospherics to say, hey, there is some generate. General, uh, general interest that has come from that. I mean, it has been effective in sparking that that interest and propensity I mentioned earlier. Um, and so, you know, it tongue in cheek a little bit and watch it's a great video. It's very well produced. Um, but what it also does is increase the curiosity level. And, and we're already kind of seeing the, the benefits of that because that interest increase and that curiosity has moved people into a position where hey, I'm really interested in that. And then that really starts a discussion about, hey, what are my options here? You know, where, where can I go? You know, and, and so just reaching out to people that are within the career field is just a great conversation to have, um, even if it's, you know, just professional development and helping maneuver officers and NCOs kind of understand how to employ the craft a bit better. Right. Yeah, that, that video is uh, really well done. Um, so like uh, Major Haydock, who's on there, uh, he, whenever it, he became the XO and he was going to take the charge of our social media effort in our battalion at the time. Uh, he came to me and he goes, have you seen this video? We need to do more of this. And I was just like, I was, I was like, yeah, I'm sure the, the budget on there was way more than the $0 that I have to do that. Uh, um, and then uh, it's also showed up in recruiting to where they're like, how do we make a National Guard version of this? So that, that video really kind of set the standard for a lot. So uh, well done. Um, well, what am I not smart enough to ask you guys about that y'all should be talking to me about? Well, I think I can answer the other half of your question, Go which for is it. about the future, right, without without getting into trouble. So military information support operations, psychological operations, psychological warfare, political warfare, propaganda, white, gray, and black propaganda, has a very long history just in the United States alone. We can trace it back to things Benjamin Franklin did, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But as a branch, we're very nascent. 
right? I think it was uh, late 1980s when we came back to life. The phoenix rose, if you will, from the ashes, and we took intelligence um, soldiers, military intelligence soldiers, and created the 96 Foxtrot MOS, which was the Psychological Operations Specialist. So if you think about in the history of doctrine and other capability development, right? The infantry has been around since the beginning, Yep. right? So we have less than 40 years. And in that 40 years, look at what has changed in the environment. I can tell you, having been in federal service now for 35 years, um, I have never been in an organization like this, and I'm talking about our proponents specifically, where every single person, whether the Department of Army civilian or an active duty soldier or an AGR soldier wants to be in this office. And what's that, what is that producing is evolution, right? So we were stagnant for a long time because we were nascent. And I think the direction, our training, our doctrine, our personnel development, our organizational changes, material acquisition, name all the .mlpfp stuff is going, is probably pretty unprecedented in our history and I'm, and I'm super excited about it. So that's how I would phrase the future for our branch, right? Is it's very exciting and yeah. I think it's very positive. It sounds like a, a super fun time to get, uh, get into it for sure. I, Personally, I find it super fascinating. Uh, just from a being a chaplain, then you, you learn people really well, and then being uh, doing marketing, like you learned that very well. So it's it's interesting to see you guys side of it. So we've actually written um, papers on how do you use um, chaplains and their understanding of a foreign culture, right, mm -hmm. to inform commanders, and how do you leverage that information, right? So you know. Again, you can be an influencer without being a weapon, right? right. And, and so those um, special staff are often like hidden secrets, right? For a commander, especially especially outside armed conflict, right? right. Where you can have a, a great deal of effect. Yeah, uh, um, I get the lucky opportunity to, to kind of mentor some uh, younger uh, chaplain candidates, newly assessed chaplains and uh, some uh, you know, they call them RASs now. I don't know if it's official, but like religious affairs specialist for chaplain's assistance. And I always try to make that point to them. I was like, yeah, like you do religious work for sure. All right. That's, that's your core competency. And you have some other things that you do, but like, you know, that's only going to take up maybe 25% of your day. What you do with the other 75% of your day can be really, really cool if you get creative with it and you really kind of lean forward on it. So it's good to hear that you guys are using them. Well, uh, thanks, guys, for being on. It's super, super interesting. Um, I look forward to hanging out with you again, Marty, at some point. So. You bet. Yeah, yeah hey, Can appreciate the opportunity. Great talking with you on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's I, it's super interesting, and I think the, the way that, like, the modern battlefield is evolving, you guys are going to become more and more and more relevant because, I mean, everybody's interconnected now, and so information is the fight. So it's this just like, fight. Yeah, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's the way you shape it. Um, all right. Well, thanks, guys. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.